0: What is up, my podcast fam? Welcome back once again to a brand new episode of Sweeten Up, episode number 43. I am your host, Jeff Spencer, and I'm coming at you from my podcast studio located in the heart of Newtown, Connecticut. Thank you so much for taking some time to join me today. I greatly appreciate it. Whether you have for a while or you are today for the first time, it means a lot to all of us here at the podcast. As always, if you like what you hear in the podcast today, please be sure to head on over to anywhere you listen to podcasts and hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a future episode. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Podcast. Also, if you have a suggestion for the podcast, want to write into the show, or would like to be a guest down the road, please reach out to us at SweetenUpPodcast at gmail.com or send us a DM on any of our social media platforms. With that being said, my guest on the podcast today, is the great and powerful Rob Shear. Rob Shear is the founder of Comfort Cases and an outspoken advocate for youth and foster care. His interview with Upworthy went viral in February 2017, garnering more than 100 million views, and he was later featured on Ellen and the Today Show. He was given a trash bag to pack his belongings as he entered in his foster care home at the age of 12. When he aged out of the system at 18, he became homeless, and again, packed up his belongings in a trash bag. Nearly 30 years later, when he became a foster parent, his four children arrived at his home with trash bags. He was saddened that nothing had changed. In 2013, Rob's family and their community founded Comfort Cases and set out on a mission to eliminate trash bags from the foster care system. Rob tells his story from the beginning until where he is today, to give you the feel of what it was like being in his shoes. I asked him what we could do better with our foster care system, what it was like having his book published by Derek Jeter and Simon & Schuster, what he's taken away from his work at Comfort Cases, his passions in life, and so much more. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, sit back and relax. Here he is, my friend, the great and powerful, literally, Rob Shear. on the podcast today live via zoom video conferencing it is such an honor a pleasure a joy there's so many words that come to mind when i see this individual he is the founder of comfort cases an outspoken advocate for youth and foster care and an all-around wonderful human being the great and powerful literally rob sheer and rob thank you so much for joining me this evening on the sweeten up podcast all the way down there in maryland
1: and how are you my friend Wow, Jeff, I am doing great, but I have to tell you, first of all, that is the most amazing introduction I have heard, and I probably have been on hundreds and hundreds of podcasts throughout the years, um, you know, telling our story, and I have to tell you, um, that's the best introduction, so thank you, I mean, I'm actually blushing if you guys can see me right now.
0: Uh, no, thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. Um, listen, it's it's a pleasure to speak to you. I'm so glad we were able to get connected thanks to the wonderful Noah Aylhert over there doing wonderful things with Discover Your Path Tour in Guilford, who has been on the podcast. So if you haven't heard that episode, please, please, after you're done listening to this, go back, check out that episode. It was a really great episode. And thank you so much, Noah, for getting us connected. And so, listen, Rob, one place I like to start is you know, with the last year we've had, how are you, your family, you know, handling COVID? How's everyone doing? What have you been doing to get through and what could
1: you tell us? Wow. Well, first of all, I do want to thank Noah. Um, I consider Noah a friend and, um, you know, I talked to him yesterday. I was texting with him today. He's an amazing human being. He is truly what I say is a good human. But how are we dealing with COVID? You know, I will tell you, Jeff, we are dealing with COVID just like everyone out throughout the country is dealing with it. We are um, trying to get by. And that's how I put it. I was I was actually doing a news um, report the other day and I was telling them that, you know, because they asked the same question. I always get this question. You know, we're a dad with five kids. We're in five different schools, um, all of them homeschooling right now because of COVID. And, you know, we're getting by. But what I remind everybody, is that the way you felt in March of 2020, when we all woke up and realized that the pandemic had hit our country and our doors started to shut, um, when our kids stopped going to school, when our jobs stopped allowing us to come into the office, I want you to remember how that felt, because that's how kids who enter foster care feel every single day. There is a pandemic in their life Every single day, they don't know what tomorrow will bring. They don't know how they got to where they are today. And they truly don't understand what doors are ever going to open or close for them. And I remind everybody those same kids that I just talked about are in a system because of a choice someone else made. A choice someone else made. See, we can make the choice to put our mask on and protect each other. We can make the choice when it's our time to get the vaccine to be vaccinated. But these kids, they didn't have a choice they didn't have a choice. And I'm going to tell you, as a kid who grew up in the system, I remember very vividly being 18 years old. I was a homeless kid. I had aged out of foster care. I was a senior in high school. Um, and I remember, and by the way, Jeff, I came from the worst of worst. Okay. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. My mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. And for you know, entertainment purposes, my father would hold a cold gun to our head and click it and laugh and want to say, you know, Francis, who's going to, you know, pee on themselves first? And she would laugh as the smoke would bellow out of her mouth, you know, and that was just my family. That was normal to me. And I remember being 18 and I graduated from high school, walked across that stage. Nobody cheered. You know, I I couldn't believe I finally made it. And I remember sitting in the parking lot on the curb crying. I was crying for everything. But what I was crying really is for my mom and dad. Now, understand that, you know, understand this, Jeff. You you got two people who had abused me for the first 12 years of my life, physically, mentally, sexually, all of my siblings, okay? And here I'm 18 years old, and I'm sitting on a curb, and who am I crying for? The people... Who actually abused me. Why? Because that was my family. And that's what these kids are thinking every day. They just want their families. That's very interesting.
0: Um, that's, a, that's a great way to put it because it's so accurate. And I, I never even really looked at it from that lens. So it's a, I really appreciate that insight. So Rob, you have a very interesting yet uplifting and inspiring and incredible story that culminated into the wonderful work you are doing um, with founding Comfort Cases. So definitely take me to your childhood and how you ended up in the foster care system and what it was like.
1: So you have to realize I grew up, you know, I'm 54 years old. And um, as I had said earlier, I mean, I grew up with a very, very dysfunctional family. Um, I think we put the D in dysfunctional. Um, You know, as a matter of fact, this is the first time I've aired this. just two days ago, I got my um, DNA test results back and um, I my husband had bought me a DNA kit for Christmas. And I was kind of surprised when it came back, because, of course, once again, I realized that, you know, everything anybody had ever told me was just a bunch of bullshit. And, um, you know, and so, it, it, again, Being a kid who grew up with parents the way I grew up with parents, you know, for my first 12 years, you know, I don't remember a picture hung on the wall. I don't remember a holiday being celebrated. I definitely don't remember a birthday. Um, I don't remember my mother hugging me or looking at me and telling me that she loved me. I don't remember my father doing anything but putting that cigarette out on my leg like he did to my other siblings because we didn't grab the pap's blue ribbon fast enough out of the refrigerator and got it to his recliner. I, I just there was a lack of love, a lack of of care, and and nobody seemed to notice it around. You gotta realize back in the 70s and early 80s what happened in your house stayed in your house and you did not talk about it anywhere else. And you know, and neighbors, it wasn't like, you know, Johnny walked down the street and he had a black eye and all of a sudden a neighbor would say, "What? what's going on? Why is that kid have a black eye? That, that just didn't happen. And so what happened for me is that I turned 12 and my parents ended up dying. Um, they died, you know, separately apart, but within the same year. And I ended up going to, you know, the, the neighborhood had heard that, you know, my parents had died and had nowhere to live. Um, there were several of us siblings that were still left um, at home. And, and you got to understand what the statistics are for kids like me. I mean, kids who are come from what I came from and kids who are in the system only 54% of us actually graduate from high school. You know, only 11% apply to college and only 3% get a college education. And we know for a fact that, you know, more than 80% of our prison populations were people that were touched by foster care. So my brothers and sisters had already fallen to the wayside. They were already ended up in drugs and they were in, you know, detention centers and prison cells. And, but for me, there was a neighbor on the street who took me in. Um, they took me in and they became my foster parents. I remember when I walked up their driveway with my trash bag, with all my torn and tattered stuff in there. I remember the, the woman who was going to be my mom, um, you know, pulling stuff out. I remember her walking me down the hallway to tell me it was time to take a bath. And, you know, I remember walking in that bathroom and that bar soap laying in the tub and, You know, I remember looking at that at the age of 12 and thinking to myself, my life has completely changed. And at that moment, I had decided that either I was going to let that bar soap define me. I was going to let what, you know, everybody thought I was going to be like, you know, like my brothers and my sisters, or I was going to do something different. And what I was going to do is I was going to be that kid that you wanted. See, I always wanted to be wanted. I wanted a mom and dad to love me and be proud of me. And, you know, I remember being a young boy at one of the places we lived and sitting in the front yard and watching the neighbor dad throw the football with his son. And I remember, you know, even at an early age, six, seven, that I knew I was never going to have that dad. I knew I was never going to be that boy who had his dad come outside and throw the ball. But I knew one day, one day in my life, I was going to be that So I came out of that bathroom and decided that I was going to do everything I could to make my parents proud. And I would run the vacuum before they asked me to. They had three younger kids and I watched them all the time. I, you know, was going to school, getting good grades. And next thing you know, I'm in high school. You know, and I didn't think of myself as the foster kid. I didn't think of myself as a kid who, you know, had gone through so much trauma the first 12 years of my life. You know, I thought of myself as I was with my mom and dad and my three younger siblings. And um, I loved them. I loved them, gosh, with all my heart. And then the fall of 1984, everything changed. I came home from school. And there waiting for me was my trash bag. My trash bag. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what is this? And my foster father said, you can't live here any longer. Like, what do you mean? You're 18, check doesn't come. You're not living here. I remember my foster mother was standing there as a tear rolled down her eye. And I looked at her and I said, mom. And she said, there's nothing I can do. Wow. You wanna talk about complete, utter loss. you know? I was not expecting that, and I wasn't expecting what chapter I was going to go to next in my life, and that was to become a homeless kid—literally homeless kid, living on the streets of Northern Virginia. Wow! Remember the very first night, I was so scared. You know, I wasn't one of those kids. I went to church every Sunday. You know, I was a yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am kind of kid. (laughs) You know, what was I going to do? But I knew that if I continued to get my education if I continue to go to school, that I can make a difference. See, my community had taught me that if I got that piece of paper that said that I graduated from high school to be by the way, one of the first ones in my entire family to ever graduate, I could actually be something. And so I walked into school the next day, I hid my trash bag behind the bush and I walked in with my head held high. I didn't tell anybody, but week after week after week, after week, you could tell. See, I had a $3.35 an hour job at the local taco place and that's actually you know what minimum wage was back then. And when I wasn't working at my taco place, I was sitting in the public library and I was reading every book I got my hands on. Because I knew at that time, if I could fall into those pages and escape everything that was around me, and that if I could educate my mind, I could truly educate my future. See, as I was sitting in Mrs. Brown's English class my senior year of high school, and I watched the guidance counselors pull all the other kids out and asked them, what are you doing for your future? No one asked me. As month and after month went by, and I became this scrawny, long-haired, dirty kid, I couldn't even tell you the last time I brushed my teeth. No one looked at me. See, the problem is, Jeff, if you looked at me, then you'd have to realize you failed me. You failed me, True. that's what had happened. May, 1985, June, 1985, I was barely making it. I was days away from graduating, and I was just like, I don't know if I can do this any longer. I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm tired. I couldn't tell you unless I slept in a real bed, curled up in a bathroom, sleeping at night, with my body pushed up against the door. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That that is unbelievable. I made it, though. I made it to that graduation day and they lined us all up, put our caps and gowns on. I remember they started calling out names. Gosh, people were screaming and clapping and yelling. And (laughs) then they called my name. It's exactly right. Silence. I walked off the stage and I didn't go back to my seat. I actually left the auditorium and I went back into the back parking lot and I sat on the curb. And at that moment, I really cried. I cried for my mom and dad that I missed so much. I cried for my foster parents. How could they have not really loved me? And then I cried for all of you, my community, my community that had really taught me what was really important. Me. See, My community had realized that I was invisible and I was disposable. And the only thing they cared about was themselves, not me. So it was me that had to care about me. So for several weeks, as I walked the streets, I wondered what I was gonna do. And I finally realized that I was gonna join the United States Navy. (laughs) You know, I'll tell you, I did not join the Navy because I wanted to protect anybody. (laughs) I wanted to join the Navy, Jeff, because I was cold, I was hungry. I went in a roof over my head. I went to Fort Meade, Maryland to the MEP station and said, I want to join the Navy to the front guards person. He said, yo, man, that's not the way it works. You got to find a recruiter. You got to go take an ASVAB test. And OK, and I did it. A couple more weeks go by. I finally get accepted into the Navy. I'll never forget it. Gosh, I go to Great Lakes, Illinois. I'd never been on a plane. I'd never, you know, this was crazy. But I remember I had my trash bag when I got to Fort Meade. I remember staying in that hotel for the first night. Gosh, was it so comfortable. But I remember I threw my trash bag away that night and I said I was never gonna look back. I was never gonna talk about the 18 years prior. I was never gonna tell people about my past. See, I'm a true believer that if you get into your car and sit in the front seat, you look at an amazing, big, big window. Why? Because you should always be looking to your future. The rear view mirror, it's really small. Why? Because very seldom should you look backwards. And that's what I had decided. That's what I was going to do. And so I left that hotel room, I got into BWI, I flew to Great Lakes, Illinois, and I decided I was going to make it. And that's what I did. I actually graduated in the top of my Naval boot camp. I was actually voted the honor man. Nobody had ever acknowledged me before. And this was my entire division. My entire companies all voted for one person, one recruit who was stellar above the rest, went above and beyond. And they voted for me. I was going to get that medal a day of graduation. I couldn't believe it. And by the way, Jeff, when I walked across that stage, they screamed, they yelled, they clapped. I made it. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy, Jeff. And then off to my A school, I went. See, I was going to be a yeoman. I was really good at typing and filing. And, and so I went to my A school. I was a couple of weeks into it, you know, going every day, you know, hitting the chow hall. And the next thing you know, I wake up. And I'm in a hospital. I Couldn't believe it. Nurse comes walking in. She said, um, Seaman recruit, you, you doing okay? I said, why am I here? And she says, you don't know what happened? And I said, no, ma'am. And she says, well... You were sitting on base in class and your bladder ruptured. What? And she said, yeah. She said, but we fixed you. You're all better. And you're going to spend a couple of weeks here and we'll send you back to the base. So, Jeff, when I was a little boy, my biological dad, that's what you can call him. Every single time any of us kids would go to the bathroom, he would punch us in our bladder. 12 years of the constant punching after punching after punching. Finally, when I was 12, I was scared to pee. I was 18 and I was scared to pee. What if someone punched me? And so I would hold my bladder until the point where finally the doctor said, you can't hold it any longer. You've killed all your nerves. And boom. So, I spent a couple of weeks in the hospital, went back to the base thinking I was going to just start back into my class. And I walked into Petty Officer Green's office and there sitting on his desk was a yellow envelope. I looked at him. See, I'd opened up to Petty Officer Green. I had told him a little bit about my story. He wanted to know why I never got letters. You know, I told him it was just me and I needed the Navy. And at that moment, he handed me that yellow envelope. It was a one-way plane ticket to Virginia and a one-month pay. He informed me that the Navy was medically discharging me, and because I had not been in the military long enough, I would receive no benefits at all, but one-month pay. Off I went. I jumped on that plane and I flew to Dulles Airport, which is right outside of Reston, Virginia. I hitchhiked down Route 7 to a little town called Gore, where I found a hotel where I rented by the week. That was where I was living. I would hitchhike into town and work at a local DART, which is like a Target nowadays. Until finally I got to a point where I was just about out of money and I went back to my safe place. The place that always opened its doors and welcomed me. The place that I knew no matter what I did or who I was, I walked in, they accepted me. The public library. You know, I walked in that library knowing exactly what I was going to do. I was going to type myself up a resume, and I was going to find myself a job. And that's exactly what I did, my friend. I typed up a resume so good you would have hired me. (laughs) I went to the local Goodwill. I bought myself a suit. I started walking up and down the streets, giving people my resume. And I walked into a bank. I remember my palms were sweating. I was like, they're going to know this paper is a lie and they're going to throw me in jail. That's what I thought would happen. Instead, the guy hired me on the spot, literally on the spot. (laughs) What an act of kindness. And that moment, that moment is truly what helped me push through again. Before you know it, I was climbing the corporate ladder. I'd gone to my boss and told him that my resume was all a lie two years into my job he looked at me and said what and I said yeah I said I made it all up I needed a job I was homeless he was like really he's like yeah he said Rob you're the most honest person I know he was like "Yeah." yeah he was like get back to work and I did and I continued to climb the corporate ladder and before you know it I was becoming an executive you know I had done what my community told me to do number one Make as much money as you can so we can take everybody to Disney World. By the way, I filled my bank account. Number two, buy a big house. Jeff, I'm telling you, I bought a huge house in D.C. (laughs) Every single time someone walked by my big house, I wanted you to stop in front of it, look at it, and say, wow, whoever lives in that house, they made it. Then my community taught me it's all about a very expensive car. So guess what? I bought two, you know, because when I went to that stoplight, you better look over at me. You better say, wow, that person made it because see, that's what it's about. Me, me, me. And that's the way my life was until 12 years ago, 12 years ago. See, I had it all. I was an executive. I was dashing all over the country. I had the most amazing partner who would soon become my husband. I had it all. You know, I hobnobbed with senators and congresspeople. My husband and I even went to dinner at the mayor's house. That's the type of people we were. But let me tell you, every single time people would sit around the table and they would say, so Rob, tell us a little bit about your past. And I would laugh and say, come on, guys. You know what I always say. Let's talk about our future. I would get home afterwards and Reese would look at me and he'd say, when are you going to open up one day? I said, Reese, if these people knew that I don't know the difference between there, there, and there, that I was a kid who used to eat out of the trash cans that you threw trash in, would they really want to break bread with me? See, that's what I thought. I was so worried about what my community thought about me, that what damage was I doing inside? And then four of the most amazing kids walked into my life. It was crazy. See, I told you I always wanted to be a dad. I just didn't know how that journey was going to go. I immediately wanted to adopt overseas, and I wanted a baby. And recent said to me one Saturday morning as we were drinking coffee, probably suffering from a hangover. <laughs> he said to me, "Do you really think that we should be adopting a kid overseas when there's all these kids in foster care?" And I said, "Really." I said, I told you that we were not going to talk about that. He said, Rob, maybe that's one of your issues. God, he's so smart. <laughs> and he was right. And so I said, let's do it. Let's adopt out of foster care. I wanted one kid under the age of five. I wanted that kid to be acute as a button because when these two gay guys walked down the streets of D.C. pushing that stroller, again, I wanted you all to stare at me. Little would I know that within... Less than nine months, two of the most incredible kids walk into my life. My beautiful daughter, Amaya, who was four years old, with her little brother, Makai, who was two. Wow, I remember those big brown eyes my daughter looked up at me at. And I remember that I was the happiest guy in the world. I was finally a dad, and I was a dad to a little girl and her sweet little brother. The one thing I noticed, is that she wouldn't smile. I remember saying to Reese, this is the happiest day of my life, but she's so sad. We went shopping, everything she looked at, we would throw in the cart, and still she wouldn't smile at me. We got home that night, we unloaded the car with all the packages, took the kids inside, filled up the tub. There was so many bubbles in that tub, you could barely see my beautiful daughter Amaya's face. But it's still, She didn't smile. She got out of the tub. She grabbed her little robe, walked into her bedroom. And there laying on the bed, Reese had laid three nightgowns. She walked over, she picked one of them up, and she tore the tag off. Jeff, my daughter, Amaya, turned around and smiled at me for the very first time. I said to Amaya, and I get so choked up every single time I think about it. Mm. Why are you smiling? She said, Mr. Rob. I've never owned a new nightgown before. See, that's just not acceptable. It's unacceptable that kids come into the system. And by the way, both of my kids carrying a trash bag, a trash bag. We were their third home. How could we be a community of people that care and love so much and we forget about the kids who need us the most? But for me, I just want to be a dad. And little would I know that literally three months later, the doorbell would ring again. And there stands the social worker with two trash bags and two little boys. My beautiful son, Grayson, who was two, with his little brother, Tristan, who was six months. I will tell you that they both came with trash bags and more baggage than you can imagine. But now I was a dad to four kids. Four kids! all under the age of four, three of them in diapers, all these women out there who say they had nine months. I, We had three months. I'll tell you, when gay people do it, we do it big. Okay? <laughs> and as many times as everybody looked at us and said we were crazy, it didn't matter. We wanted to love these four kids. Uh-huh. And that's what we did. We, we loved them like they had never been loved before. And by the way, loving them wasn't the fact that we gave them everything, which we did, but it was the fact that we were a family. We moved out of the city, we moved into the suburbs, we bought a farm. We had a child who has fetal alcohol syndrome. They said he was never gonna walk, never gonna talk bullshit, you never met a shear. You know, we never say the word never. By the way, my son is 14 and he walks and he talks and he loves, he loves. And that's what's important. And eight years ago, as I was sitting in my fancy office as an executive, as I traveled back and forth from the East Coast and West Coast where my offices were, as my children went to the best schools, you know, dressed the best way, traveled all over the country, had passports as little babies. That's what I thought was important until my husband walked into my office. He said, it's time to plan on the toy drive. See, Reese had given up his career as an interior designer to stay home and have the hardest job in the world, which is to be a stay-at-home dad. I don't care what anyone says. There should be a salary for stay-at-home parents. It is the hardest job in the entire world. For those who think that these parents are sitting around eating bonbons and watching you know, General Hospital, that's the total BS of BS. They have the hardest job. It's 24-7. And just imagine there are five of us. And my husband. Been make six, you know, and he walked into my office because every year, as an interior designer, he used to do love two things that he always would do. One would be the company party, and number two would be the big toy drive that we would do. And we would park up a big tent in front of Ben's Chili Bowl in DC, and you know, we would have wpgc the local radio station, come, and people would drop off toys, and we would give them to those kids, you know, those foster kids. In this particular time, he walked into my office. And something had hit me a little different. And he said he was ready to start planning the toy drive. You know, my assistant was coming in. And I said, I don't want to do it. He said, what? I said, I don't want to do the toy drive. He said, why not? The kids love it. They love going shopping. And, you know, they love it. And I was like, Reese, what are we teaching our kids? We're teaching our kids that you give that needy kid a toy. It makes everything better. You and I both know that on December the... 26, we all wake up and we do not think about those children. Half of them, the toy is broke. What are we doing to really impact our community? He said, "Rap, what are you talking about? I said, Reese, our kids are really privileged and we have to teach them that giving back is what's important. Not the house that we live in or the cars that we drive. It's giving back. And he says, what do you want to do? And I literally, Jeff, opened up my desk drawer and I pulled out a trash bag because I never let it stay far from me. It's right now in my briefcase. I never wanna forget where I came from. I never ever want anyone to think that I should be ashamed because you gave me a trash bag. What I need to do is figure out how to change it, change the mindset of people that this is okay. And I said, I want to eliminate these. He said, you are batshit crazy. I said, I know. That's why you married me. Let's do it. That's <laughs> it amazing. Wow. That is incredible. I mean,
0: wow, wow. I am just absolutely blown away by everything you just said, because the story is just, I mean, you have, you have me in tears. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing story. And, you know, when Noah told me the fact that when, you know, the, the authorities come or the police or whoever comes to take the kids and they have to put their belongings in trash bags and that you were looking to change that. That was just, I mean, remarkable.
1: I mean, yeah, well, let me tell you, I thought I was only going to do it for the Christmas holiday. I gathered all my, my employees together. I brought some members of my church in. Um, by the way, gay people go to church, too. Um, and I brought some of my neighbors and friends, and I brought them all into my training center. And they were all wondering, you know, what's going on here? And then I proceeded to tell my story. My story about the broken, tattered boy who just wanted to be wanted. Right. I remember looking around that room and I remember people in shock. Some people had heard bits and pieces, some had heard nothing, tears as it flowed down their eyes. And I proceeded to tell them what I wanted to do. One, I wanted to make sure that every child in the system got a brand new pair of pajamas with a tag on it. I remember my daughter's smile. Number two, I wanted to make sure that every single child got their own toothbrush, their own toothpaste, their own lotion, their own conditioner, their own shampoo, and their own bar of soap. See, people always ask me about that bar of soap. I ask them, when you start traveling again and you go stay in your hotels, call the hotel up. Ask them to leave the bar of soap from the people before you. You won't. It's called dignity. These kids go into a house of strangers, and they don't even know the person's favorite color, or much less their middle name. And then you want them to take a bar of soap and lather their body up? Dignity. Then I wanted to make sure that every kid got an activity. Kids under the age of ten get a coloring book and crayons, and kids over the age of ten get a journal and a pen and pencil set. You know, Jeff, I had filmed a CNN special a couple of years ago, and I was in the Midwest, and I met this young boy, and he was about thirteen years old, and He started to open up his case, and he started to cry. And we stopped the filming, and I sat down on the floor, and I asked him why he was crying. He said, Mr. Rob, I can't believe they did this all for me. And I said, they did. And he pulled out his journal. He said, I've been in foster care for three years. I've been in 11 homes. Every home I go to, I have all this music in my mind. And the only thing I ever wanted was a journal to write it in. Jeff, it was a 50 cent composition book. But to that boy, it was gold. To that boy, it was his future. To that boy, it showed him that his community loved him. And then we give every kid a book. I truly do believe as an author, I wrote my book for two reasons, A Forever Family. One, I want you to love it in your mind. Number two, I want you to love it in your heart. But the most flattering thing that you can ever do to a book is pass it on. Pass it on. There's no such thing as a used book. It's only a book that's been loved. And then we give every kid a stuffy. I don't care how old you are, whether you're a newborn or 19. Everybody loves a good stuffed animal. Noah was saying. Noah was saying the stuffed animals are like crucial. (laughs) Have to. And then finally, a blanket. See, my son Grayson. He was six years old when we started to pack our first case. He came to me at the age of two. His mother was 12. He came into the system with bleeding of the brain, chicken baby syndrome, and three broken ribs. And he looked at me at the age of six and said, Daddy, we must put a blankie in every case. I said, a blanket? I said, Grayson, you know these kids are not cold. He said, I know, Daddy. But every time they wrap themselves up in their blankie, they know we love them gosh, isn't that what we all want? We all want to be loved. We all want to know that we matter. We're not invisible. We're not disposable. And that's what happened. One case led to 500 cases to the next thing you know, eight years have passed and we've given out over 125,000 cases In all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, and I know I do not have to remind your smart listeners, Puerto Rico belongs to us. We must take care of them. Yes, we are surrounded by water, but so is Hawaii. Amen. Amen. You know, the thing that we must remember is that our community is not our zip code. It's not. Our community is our human race. Our human race, so what affects me in my little town of Darnstown, Maryland, affects people in Phoenix, Arizona. What affects you up in your town? We must realize that. And that's what we started to do, making people understand. And let me tell you, my community, my community that I thought didn't know me, didn't love me, didn't care about me, that wasn't true. See... My community, they weren't educated about me. They didn't know about the system. They didn't know about the trash bags. They didn't know the fact that this is what good humans do. If I lift you up, I'm taller. And if you lift me up, you're taller. That's what we should do. And that's what we try to do every single day at Comfort Cases. Every day, I remind people all over the world, these kids, they don't belong to me. They don't belong to you. They belong to us. To us. That is
0: awesome. You know, and and, and how long has Comfort Cases been around for those listening?
1: So we will celebrate eight years this fall. Wow, The charity has been in existence. So it's been kind of crazy. So by the way, two years ago, um, I gave up my plush um, executive job um, to go on a book tour. I went on my book tour and decided to become a public speaker. I remember coming home and telling my husband that I was going to leave my job and do what I felt was my Passion to my purpose. And he said, you do realize you're the breadwinner in this family, right? (laughs) He's so smart. I said, I know. He said, you know what? He said, you haven't failed us yet. And by the way, my husband and I are going to celebrate 16 years this weekend. Uh Um, You know, my husband said to me, he said, you haven't failed us yet. And, you know, I haven't looked back. And, you know, I've been very, very, very lucky, very humbled and very blessed. But you know what? I didn't stop there. Last year, as I was circling the globe, giving speeches, I happened to come back to my town where I live, right here in in Montgomery County, Maryland. And I went and gave a speech at a local high school. As I proceeded to tell my story, I could see in my peripheral vision, a young boy. I could tell that he was getting a little emotional. And after I was done, everybody left the room, except for this one boy who was standing there with his guidance counselor and his principal. He walked up to me and asked, Mr. Shear, will you please sign my book? I said, of course, what's your name? He said, Alex. I said, Alex, tell me something about yourself. He says, I have nothing to tell. I said, Alex, we all have a story. He said, no, Mr. Shear, my story is going to be just like yours. I'm 18. I've been in foster care. I'm going to be 19 in January. I'm going to age out and I'll be homeless just like you. I said, Alex, that's not the way it has to go. He said, no, that's the way it'll go. That kid saying that to me affected me like I'd never felt in such a long time. I looked at the principal and the guidance counselor, and I said, this this is not the way it's got to go for this kid. As a tear rolled down the principal's eyes, she looked at me and said, Rob, he has a 3.6 in school. I said, how could we be failing this kid? I gave him my business card, and I said, Alex, this has my private cell phone number on it. I said, I want you to call me. We're going to figure this out. I have to go and give another speech, but I want you to please reach out to me. Thought about that kid all day. And that night I went home, took my family out to dinner. As we sat around at a restaurant, I proceeded to tell my children about Alex, this young boy that I had met. And one of my kids said, Dad, if he calls, let's invite him to dinner this weekend. I said, you know, what a great idea. Well, the next day, Alex called me. I said, Alex, you wanna come to our farm and have dinner? He said, really? I said, yes, yeah. I'll call your foster parents. We'll get it arranged. And sure enough, that Saturday, he came and he had dinner with us. My kids realized we had more to give, and we had to give it to Alex. So as of December of 2019, Alex moved in with us. He came home to his forever family. He's graduated from high school with a 3.6. I'm a proud dad.
0: <laughs> He's
1: enrolled in college. And in two months, we will actually finalize his adoption at the age of 20. Why? Because he needed us and we needed Alex. So I'm now happy to say I'm a proud father of five of the most amazing humans, my kind and sweet son, Alex, who is 20, my beautiful queen of a princess, my daughter, Amaya, who's 16, my absolutely playful, mischievous boy, Mackay, who's 14, my strong, passionate son, Grayson, who's 13, and then my little mini-me, my little Tristan, who's 12. Life has changed. And by the way, those three things that my community had taught me, Jeff, my house, my car, and my money, That's not what we should be teaching our children. We should be teaching our children the final three things. Number one, our family. Number two, our community. And number three, our dash. See, there's a poem out there that most of us have read. We're all gonna get one. White, black, rich, poor, gay, straight, male, female, Each and every one of us are going to be given the same exact thing. A dash. Walk through your graveyards. You see them every single day. The year you're born, your dash, and the year you die. I want my dash to be bright, Jeff. I want my kids to walk by it and see it and shine so bright that they say, my dad, he didn't talk about it. He actually did it. So that's what we're about. That's
0: awesome. That is so great. And you know, you were a CNN hero. You did an interview on Upworthy that went viral in February of 2017, which now is 105 million views to date. You've been on Ellen and your book was acquired by the publishing imprint with Derek Jeter. Definitely talk to me about all of that cool. I mean, cause that's, that's just awesome because it's a cool experience for you, I'm sure. But at the same time, you're promoting all this good.
1: Yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, I try to tell people all the time. I get I get this like, oh, my gosh, you you know, you were in Lester Holt and you were in People magazine. And and we filmed a movie. We filmed a show called Dads with Bryce Howard and Will Smith. And at the end of the day, I put my pants on just like everybody else. At the end of the day, I love curling up on the couch with my kiddos and my dogs and my cat. And. You know, I'm to- definitely not that guy. And by the way, that fancy car that I told you about, I drive a, I, I drive a Toyota hybrid. I don't you know, we live in a farmhouse. And, you know, most of the money that I have in my bank, I give back to my charity because that's the way you're supposed to do it. Um you know, life has been good. And I truly believe that if you stay humble and don't forget where you came from, the future is really bright. So, you know, Derek Jeter, amazing human. I am so absolutely blessed that Simon & Schuster and Gallery Books and Derek Jeter published my book. I'm, I'm glad that my book became number one in my foster care arena. I'm, you know, I I'm, I'm just lucky in so many ways I don't know how the you know people say me all the time you know what what did you do I don't know I mean that video that went viral and by the way that was 105 million views on Upworthy it had additional 60 million views on all the other Upworthy on the other channels it was uploaded on it was crazy shit when that happened you know Ellen's calling me the view um I just told my story I just told my story you know I, I was, I was, you know, authentic. I told my story and I didn't care what the hell anybody thought about it. Um, and so that's how it was. And, you know, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. The only regret I have, and I remind people all the time. Um, the only regret I have is that I gave my kids electronics too early.
0: <laughs> hey, No worries. No worries. <laughs> You're, you're a humble, you're an extremely humble guy and it's awesome and, and it's, it's inspiring and uplifting. And how can folks help out and donate? Because I've seen your videos uh, lately of getting involved and, you know, I'm sure COVID-19 maybe has been a little, little more difficult to hold fundraisers and do different things. So what are ways people can donate to help out what you do at Comfort
1: Case? Well, I will tell you we are a 96% volunteer ran charity, which is unheard of nowadays. Okay. So literally two years ago, we were 100% volunteer. So when someone gives us a dollar, 96 cents of that dollar goes to the mission. It goes to make sure that there are no more trash bags in the hands of kids entering the system. So what they can do, first of all, each and every one of us have an opportunity. We can adopt if we can. We can foster if we want to. We can donate if we want to. Become a bagbuster, Go to comfortcases.org. You can go to our Amazon wish list. But you know what? I have people come up to me all the time and say, I don't have any money. I'm barely making it as now. And I tell them, each and every one of us have the most valuable thing in the world. It's our time. Our time. If you have no money, give your time. Go find the local, you know, group home and read to somebody, help them with their homework, shoot some basketball, teach somebody how to sew, you know, balance a checkbook. We all can make a difference in a child's life. Every single one of us. We just have to have the want. And for me, my family, the seven shears, we wanted it. We wanted to make a difference. That's awesome. That is really great.
0: And you know, for Rob Shear, what is the future hold for you? I mean, what are some things you have in the works?
1: You know, not only. <laughs> wow, you know it's crazy. So I, I, during the during COVID, you know I. Besides putting on a couple of pounds, um, I wrote two children's books with my amazing friend June Foster, who wrote The Golden Leaf and was on Below Deck. Um, Her and I wrote two children's books, um, so we're excited to hopefully by 2022 having them published. I'm working on um, not one but two new TV shows, Um, and so you know those are exciting things that are happening. I, I have my podcast, which is Foster. Change, um, which last year was voted one of the top ten podcasts um, in the foster care arena, and who would have ever thunk it? Um, I say it all the time: Who would have ever thought the, the the kid carrying the trash bag would be where I'm at today? But what I hope more than anything is that one day, some first lady, first gentleman, somebody will step up and say, "You know what, Rob? We've been deaf to this for way too long." Children in the foster care system deserve us more than anyone. We need to set them up for financial success. We have to open up the education pathways for each and every one of them. And then we need to make sure that they never carry a trash bag again. So that's what I hope my future brings, Jeff. That is tremendous. You know,
0: I was just going to ask you, actually, and I think you sort of just touched on it there is, you know, what can we do as a country to do better in regards to the foster care system.
1: Yeah, those three things. Set our kids up for financial success. You know, we can give foster parents a check every single month. Why can't we take some of that money and put it in an interest-bearing savings account? Give them a net. You know, when my son Alex, you know, when he moves out one day, he knows he'll always be able to call his dads. Flat tire on the side of the road, can't pay your cell phone bill, need a little bit of help for some food, call his dads. Kids in the system, they don't have that luxury. They don't have that net. We need to make them that net.
0: What is something you've learned or better yet, what have you been able to take away from everything you've done so far?
1: Mm, wow, what a great question. What have I taken away from everything I've done so far? First of all, I'm not done. Um, and I've taken away, the, yep, not, totally not done. Um, and I've, I, as a matter of fact, I feel like I'm living my best years of my life. And But what I've taken away, is the love that I have seen from our community. You know, my heart smiles more than you could ever imagine. You know, as I walk through my center today and, you know, I saw high school kids packing cases, I saw moms and dads, you know, counting inventory. I look around and I think, this is my future. These are our future. And gosh, our future's bright.
0: One, uh, one or two more things before we go, and one of those is I would love to hear the story behind the move to, uh, to going to a farm, to living on a farm. Uh, how, why you decided to do that, and then I have one more thing for you before you leave, and thank you so much again for this opportunity.
1: So why did we go to a farm? So crazy as it can be. So my son, Makai, who is 14, um, when he came to us, we were told that he was autistic and that he wasn't going to walk or wasn't going to talk. And after a couple of years of fighting the system and finally getting getting him adopted, we finally took him to do some really good medical treatment. And we found out that our son was not autistic, um, but our son had fetal alcohol. And we were told that his frontal lobe was not going to develop and that we probably were going to get the best we could. Kai was roughly about five years old. And I came home from work one day and Reese said, oh, my gosh, you have to read this article. And it was about a young girl who grew up in the foster care system who actually had fetal alcohol syndrome as well. And she was put with a family on a farm. And because of the water, the pond and the farm animals, the parents really saw a difference in her. I said, that's crazy. And he says, I know. Here's five farms for sale. <laughs> and we literally bought a farm. And we just didn't buy a farm, just like we just didn't have one kid. We bought a farm with chickens. We have three goats. We have a pig named Penelope. We have a duck named Brownie. We have three dogs. We have two cats. We have we have a cockatiel. We have a bearded dragon. We have it all. But guess what? My son who said he wasn't gonna talk or walk normally has a chicken under his arm because we call him the chicken whisperer, but he reads on a fifth grade level. He has talked in front of cameras to thousands of people, millions of people. He knows how to love. So that's why we bought our farm. That is very cool. And you know,
0: not only does he know how to love, but your whole family does and your husband and you and your entire team over there at Comfort Cases. And um, I absolutely love the merch, Be A Good Human. Yes, I I love my Be A Good Human. I love your guys' merch. You have the best merch over there, Comfort Cases. And when you buy a Be A Good Human sweatshirt,
1: you donate a case, right? Donate a case. You buy a sweatshirt. I have the Be A Good Human sweatshirt on right now, Jeff. Um, Be a good human. You buy this sweatshirt. It actually allows us to build a full case for a child who is entering the foster care system. Beautiful. So get over there, comfortcases.com, check them out,
0: everything that they're doing. Check them out on social media. Definitely check out Rob Shear. He's a tremendous individual. And listen, Rob, one thing we ask, our, uh, ask all our guests is listen, here in Connecticut, we are number one for pizza. We are debating right now in Hartford at the Capitol for pizza being our state food. <laughs> thrown out there we've been made fun of all over the country lately because of that but we are number one we have great pizza i don't know if you're a big pizza fan and this this question has changed over the years but if you like to get pizza what's your favorite style what are some places near you that you go and not only that but what are some places you just like to eat out
1: Oh my God, what a great question. First of all, I love pizza. Secondly, um, it's definitely not on my diet right now. Um, But the very first place that I would go to is a pizza place called Inferno's. It's um, a local joint that is absolutely amazing. Um, It's been voted one of the top 50 pizzas in the DC area. And we're lucky that it's in our backyard. So Inferno's is it. But where my family chooses to go eat more than any other place is we go for Mexican. It is where the restaurant we took, Alex, for the very first night, he came and had dinner with us. It's the go-to restaurant that we go to. And prior to COVID, we definitely ate out a lot. Um, We don't eat out as much now because of COVID. But, you know, we can't wait to get that needle in our arm for us to head back to our favorite Mexican place. But, yeah, Mexican's it for the shears. Gotcha. Excellent. And I totally agree with you. I can't wait
0: either. And I can't wait for us to get back to a new normal and that'll do it. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, he is the wonderful, the great, the powerful Rob Shear. Rob, thank you so much for giving us some of your time for inspiring me. I hope for inspiring everyone, uh, uh, everyone else listening with your story. I truly, truly appreciate it. I would love to have you back on again down the road. I wish you nothing but the best and everything you're doing. If there's any way I can get involved at all, besides obviously helping out and donating and buying some merch, please let me know. And I hope you have a wonderful evening, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Huge thanks once again to my guest on the podcast today, Rob Shear. I am so glad to call you a friend. I wish you nothing but the best in all that you do, and I cannot wait to touch base with you again to see all the great things you continue to do for those in need. Yet again, just like that, another episode of Sweeten Up is in the books. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate your feedback. As a reminder, you can play the podcast with the help of your smart speaker by simply saying, play the podcast Sweeten Up with Jeff Spencer. Thank you, as always, to my best friends, the guys who make it all possible, post-production and music Morgan Luzzi, art director Kurt Vinci, editor and writer Nick Passecretta. Huge thanks, as always, to Devin Sapelli. Next week on the podcast, I will be joined by the great and powerful Catherine Hanson. Catherine Hanson is the owner of Newtown Salt Spa here in Newtown, Connecticut. Originally with a background in forensics and crime scene investigation, Catherine changed paths when her husband relocated for his job. Catherine has traveled with her mom often, and one of their trips took them to Poland, where they toured a salt mine. While they were there, they noticed how much better they felt, from cleared sinuses to an overall better feeling throughout the body. She learned that people from all over Poland move closer in order to send their kids to a school that is located inside the mime to help with breathing issues such as allergies and asthma. And she learned that salt therapy called halotherapy has been used in Europe for hundreds of years and is still prescribed by doctors as a complement to modern medications. Together with the help and support of her family and friends, she built the spa salt brick by salt brick. But until then, you know the deal. Stay safe. Stay healthy. I love you all peace